0: Welcome to this special live edition of the Cynic Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SUP China. Subscribe to our free email newsletter to get the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day, or check out our excellent and newly updated smartphone app. Or our website at subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Goyle coming to you this week from George Washington University in our nation's capital, which I fondly call Beijing. Uh, thanks to the uh, generous invitation students who run the GW chapter of Global China Connect. I am delighted to see so many people here. So let's hear you make some noise.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> So with me, of course, is Jeremy Goldcorn, who's editor-in-chief of SupChina, who come all the way from Nashville, Tennessee, <laughs> from Goldcorn Holler, on a mule cart, just so he could do this show. Greet the people are, Jeremy.
1: <laughs> Hi, y'all. <laughs> I-, I do actually live in a holler now. so you do? Yeah, Technically, I th- it is I- a holler. I'm a hillbilly. <laughs> all right,
0: all right. Well, and I will write your elegy. Anyway, I think uh, very few would contest the assertion that the bilateral relationship between China and the United States is the most important diplomatic relationship we face today, and it is one that has had its share of vicinity, its share of ups and downs, and still faces very significant challenges today. Last week, Chinese President Xi Jinping joined President Donald Trump at his Mar-a-Lago resort in in Florida for a very, very important summit that was, of course, overshadowed by the American attack on a Syrian airbase in response to Bashar al-Assad's apparent nerve agent attack that killed 89 people, uh, including many children. So uh, we now have an opportunity to hear about Mar-a-Lago from someone who is actually there and who has been working on the U.S.-China relationship across now three U.S. presidencies as a career foreign service officer.
1: And right now, a U.S. carrier group is in fact steaming towards the Korean Peninsula, and there's no doubt a flurry of diplomatic activity between Washington and Beijing related to the Korean situation. So we are doubly delighted to be joined by Susan Thornton, Acting Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, who has taken the time out of what must be a really busy schedule to speak with us, Assistant Secretary Thornton. Susan, if I may, welcome to Seneca. Thank
2: you so much, Jeremy, and thank you, Kaiser. It's it's very great to be here. I'm happy to be here with all my friends at GW, and I'm especially happy to be here with Jeremy and Kaiser. You know, I always I spent 25 years as a diplomat, but I've always wanted to be in a rock and roll band, Kaiser. So maybe <laughs> after I retire, you'll find a spot for me. Hey, let's do it.
0: Let's do it. Let's All do right. it. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been looking for a singer, and I think you t- <laughs> t- fit the bill perfectly. Uh, so anyway, since we're in D.C., and in, indeed, we are in Foggy Bottom, which is just since, though, from the State Department. Uh, and since we're in an audience that includes many students, I want to talk to you first about your own career, before your rock music career, but um, your own <laughs> career in the Foreign Service. Uh, you started as a diplomat in, in Chengdu in Beijing, right, Uh, overlapped with you for quite a while. Yes,
2: yes. Uh, So 2000
0: to 2007, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And then uh, you were deputy assistant at your current bureau for the last three years before your recent appointment. So uh, how did you get started in the Foreign Service? Uh, as I understand it, I mean, you actually have something in common with me. We both started focusing on Russia,
1: right?
2: That is true. I started off as a Russian speaker, and uh, actually long before I came into the Foreign Service, I spent time in Russia. I'm actually very interested in uh, the post-communist transitions, economic transitions, which is how I got started with Russian. And then, of course, you know, most interesting of post-communist transitions or not post-communist transitions is China. So I switched to that at one point and have... Um, Uh, been looking at the two ever since.
1: And Susan, you you started in Chengdu in 2000. So that was a few months after the embassy bombing in Belgrade and the situation, if I remember rightly, had already calmed down some. But you were in China for the EP3 incident. Um, But after that, it seems things were pretty calm in the bilateral relationship for the rest of your tenure in China. Is that your perception? Uh,
2: Well, uh, things are never totally calm in the US-China relationship. But yeah, I think after the George W. Bush transition from Bill Clinton and the initial crisis over the EP3 in the Bush administration, things seemed to sort of revert to a, a kind of a workman-like relationship in the bilateral relationship and we were able to, I think, manage differences very effectively uh, as of course the economic relationship was booming at that time. And so, I think the you know, business relationship really helped provide the ballast in the relationship and get us through some of the other troubling patches that we encountered.
1: So what were the major issues that, that you encountered at that time?
2: Oh, we had a lot of focus on um, trying to make progress on IPR theft oh, was right, one of the yeah. big uh, topics that Ambassador Sandy Rant at that time in Beijing was very focused on. Uh, human rights was a huge issue at that time. We had a number of very high profile cases and we had an non- ongoing human rights dialogue. When I was in Chengdu, I covered Tibet and traveled frequently to Tibet. At that time, Tibet, uh, the Tibet Autonomous Region and other parts, autonomous regions, uh, Tibetan regions in China were quite open. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was before the um, March 2008, 2008 yeah. uh, incidents and then the lead up to the Olympic Games in Beijing. So... Uh, we're you, starting you
0: had actually gone off to uh, to uh, Kazakhstan if I'm if that's, yeah I that's
2: did right. I was in Kazakhstan in the 90s actually oh, see, right I after see. the right after Kazakhstan became a new country and we opened the embassy there oh,
0: but then after after 2000 Two thousand seven. Yeah, left, I
2: went to, uh, back to Central Asia to Turkmenistan. Oh, right, right, yeah. right, right. To, yeah. to hang
0: out with Turkmenbashi. And, right, you know, you know, right. That. To discuss human rights. Exactly, exactly. Now, that's a whole other podcast. We'd love to hear your stories okay. about Turkmenistan. we'll do it, we'll but, do it. I mean, that, that that is just one crazy place. I mean, I, I'd be really, really fascinated to hear about that. But you, you actually missed a lot of the fireworks that happened after, like, the, that epical year 2012 with the uh, Chen Guangcheng and, and, and his little sojourn in the American embassy. And, of course, the Wang Lijun thing which was right. in your, your old stomping grounds. My old stomping grounds, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I My good friend Pete Heyman,
2: who I worked with on China when I came back to China, was, was in Chengdu for the Wang Jun. Incident, but he's in Thailand now. But so
0: one of the big issues that you that was on your watch, I guess, in 2007, was uh, you know we uh, the the U.S. was working very very hard to push China on Darfur. Uh, yeah. I actually ran into Tom Christensen over the weekend, and he was mm-hmm. complaining about how uh, all the credit somehow got given to Mia Farrow and Steven Spielberg. Right,
2: right. Yeah, no, we did work very hard. I mean, that was really the beginning of trying to get China to step up to the plate and contribute more to the UN system. to resolving international and global challenges, especially the so-called hotspot issues. And South Sudan was uh, definitely uh, uh, one of those hotspot issues. Darfur was another one. And um, trying to get the Chinese to step up and contribute more on things like that was a big part of what we were doing in mm. the 2000s in, in China. This was after, of course, Robert Zellick um, pronounced the famous responsible, responsible stakeholder. Tank. And so we worked very hard to try to get them to be more engaged and sort of stepping outside of their comfort zone and in resolving international uh, crises.
0: When, when we talked to Susan Thor, I'm oh, sorry, to Susan Shirk, uh, not too long ago, uh, she talked about... Uh, uh, how she felt this kind of thrill when uh, Xi Jinping gave his speech at Davos. She felt like all that work she had put in had kind of paid off. And here they were kind of singing from the same hymn book. Like they had been enrolled in the international system that way. Uh, I wonder if you had a similar feeling when when, when you heard that.
2: Well, I think uh, for me... Um what I noticed about Xi Jinping's speech at Davos was sort of China stepping up and really saying that they're going to uphold the international system, that they're not looking to upend it. And that is something that we had been really pushing, and we're always pushing China, shape China's policies so that they contribute to upholding the international rules-based system and that they further that system, mm-hmm. not trying to set up a competing system.
1: And do you feel, if I may step ahead of it, I mean, if you look at now, 2017, do you think that they are, in fact, doing that to you know, a greater or less extent?
2: It depends. I think uh, in a lot of areas, China has really come out on the global stage. They've expanded their assistance programs in Africa and even in Latin America, which is a new area for them. They're um, working to help resolve crises in the Middle East, but not in a very high profile way. They still prefer to keep a low profile engagement. They like to contribute to crises and solutions to problems bilaterally rather than through the multilateral, like UN system or international agency system. So I think we still have a long way to go, but they're definitely stepping up and contributing more across the board.
0: So I always like to point out that during the period, say, between September 11th and the Lhasa riots that we talked about, that period while you were in China, um, you know, Jeremy had noted that it was a relatively calm period. It was also a period where I felt at least like many of the areas where we want to to see China make advances in rule of law, in civil liberties, in uh, the public sphere, in, in, in you know relative media freedoms, I felt like a lot of those areas were making advances during the George W. Bush administration. Uh, dur- on your watch, coincidence? Mm-hmm. Perhaps. Coincidence,
2: perhaps <laughs> not. No, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm
0: wondering what you think was the reason. I mean, was it because China had been enrolled in global war and terror and didn't feel a threat? Did it, was it just sort of uh, something characteristic of the who and when era? Or what, what was it? Why, why, why the sudden illiberal turn in 2009? And what, was, what were we doing differently before?
2: Yeah. I'm not sure that I think that we were necessarily doing something different before, but there was a period of kind of intellectual ferment in China during mm-hmm. those years. I think the academic and intellectual scene in China started to open up. Uh, you obviously had a lot of people that had studied abroad or were going to study abroad and bringing back new ideas. The economy was really taking off. You had a lot of influx of foreign investment into China. And so I think maybe all of these uh, factors combined to sort of of produce that kind of intellectual ferment. People were looking for dynamism in the economy. And I think in the who and when era, it's possible that, you know, there just wasn't as much attention being paid to top-down party orthodoxy. It was more right. uh, an era of kind of experimentation, maybe. Do I think
0: American diplomacy must have had some role to play there in fostering at least a, an international environment where they felt they were safe to experiment that way?
2: Yeah, I think we had a very good U.S.-China relationship. It, was, it felt very stable, so I think that that probably helped create an enabling environment that let China, kind of let more ideas come to the fore, felt a little bit maybe safer in experimenting. After the uh, Tiananmen Square riots and incident, it took a, a quite a number of years to reestablish the U.S.-China relationship. So we really didn't get back into our regular swing of things until basically the mid-90s or so. So probably between getting things back into sort of regular th- flow of dialogues and other conversations up through the early 2000s, I think at that point, maybe they felt like the relationship was solid enough. We were having pretty rich discussions, for example, on human rights. We were working on things like village elections with the Carter Center and other groups. So I think that was a period that sort of they were getting kind of increasing confidence maybe in the relationship.
1: Susan, can I interrupt? And just because this is one of Kaiser's pet things is, is looking at this period of time. And one of his theories that he didn't quite ask you exactly what he means, I believe, is um, his feeling that during that period of time, the U.S. backed off, at least publicly, in terms of uh, criticizing China about human rights and many other things that the U.S. likes to criticize China about. And that, to an extent, gave them the breathing room domestically to uh, or a lack of pressure that allowed a certain kind of liberalism that ended uh, in 2009. I wouldn't call it liberalism, but <laughs>
2: so the theory is that if you give them the space and don't criticize, that then they become more liberal. Yeah, and it wasn't if you, criticism is that your so theory?
0: much. Well, it was. It was sort of this is you know pre-color revolutions, pre-Arab Spring, and they didn't feel that they were in the crosshairs. They didn't feel like there was this project of regime change ultimately.
2: Well, I mean, uh, you know, I. I I think that there was a lot of criticism of China going on at that point. I mean, I felt Absolutely, like we were yeah. constantly engaged in, actually, even though the relationship was um, in fairly, st- it felt fairly stable. It had the usual categorization of problems. But I think we were um, not Reticent about calling China out on things, but maybe I mean we hadn't had you know the color revolutions were coming along there in the mid sort of 2000s and they're
0: distant still though Georgia
2: yeah Central Asia but the but the Arab Spring was of course much later Um, but I think you know if you look if you got to look at the economy Communist Party of China's legitimacy comes basically from its economic growth or, yeah. its performance on the economy and since the economy was booming double digit growth was being delivered every year they were also probably you know very confident on that front
0: that certainly was a factor yeah absolutely
1: um so Susan i suggested that the top of the podcast that you've been busy, but really your bureau must have been busy nonstop, (laughs) not just since the inauguration, but since the election. Um, We've seen uh, Defense Secretary James Mathis go to Asia, Japanese President Abe come to uh, the United States. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, of course, went to Japan, Korea, and China, and then there was Xi Jinping's uh, visit last week. So we've read a lot in the media about staffing issues at the State (laughs) Department. If I may ask, how has your bureau fared during the transition? and early into the administration. And if I can just extend the question, uh, are there maybe some benefits to a more stripped-down bureaucracy that most people at the State Department that I've talked to don't necessarily agree with? access (laughs)
2: it. Well, uh, look, our our bureau has gotten a lot of attention from this administration the first few months. And um, we have several hundred people in our bureau. They've been fully employed and uh, they feel like they've gotten a lot of attention that our region's gotten the amount of attention that it, it deserves. I mean, it's a very dynamic and important place. And so I think We have had no problems in working with the new incoming team since Secretary Tillerson was confirmed. We've been in, you know, constant contact with him and his staff and briefing and providing papers. And I went on the trip with him to Northeast Asia, I went uh, down to Mar-a-Lago, as you mentioned. So I think we don't see that there's been really any problem in, in kind of keeping up with the flow of work. You know, there's some people at the State Department that may think we need more people uh, you know, I personally think that it is worth having a look now. We've had a few years of, of growth under sort of the Iraq and Afghanistan and OCO budgets, et cetera, and it's worth having a look at our structure and our staffing. We have really major influx of officers uh, in response to visa workload following on all of the 9-11 and post-9-11, and every year it seems we have new requirements in visa issuance so that's been a real area of growth for us. And, you know, we it's good to sort of stop and take a look and see how your balance is and what, what all of the staffing patterns look like and make sure it's the most efficient that it can be. So I don't have a problem with that. And I think most people at the State Department actually welcome the chance to kind of scrutinize our staffing. We would rather not do it probably under threat of, you know, huge budget cuts because usually when you reorganize under the threat of a huge budget cut, you don't make the most efficient reorganizations. But anyway, we're we're looking at all of these things, and I think we're pretty sanguine about what the future holds.
0: So, you've actually straddled now not just one transition, but, but two. You, yeah. and So, you've actually, you have experience with these three administrations now. Uh, I'm, I'm curious what you see in terms of changes in the, the Culture of diplomacy in in, in uh, the way that state operates, and with your counterparts in China as well. Uh, maybe walk us through what what some of these changes have been like for for you as as a career foreign service officer.
2: Well, the most obvious thing is when I came in in '92, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have the 24-hour cable news cycle. Right. So uh-huh. the information explosion has really changed both brought more opportunities for diplomacy but also created sort of a lot of competing spaces for the work that we do and getting our message out i think clearly to our audiences both here in the US and overseas gets more complicated as the media environment becomes Balkanized so i think that is is the biggest area of difference of course technology's brought all kinds of benefits and and added opportunities too but it does it does make it harder you know you used to be able to speak to an audience and Okay. <laughs> pretty much think that you were only communicating with that audience, so you can... In diplomacy, you want to be able to tailor your message for different audiences. You can't really do that anymore, so everyone's going to hear everything that you say, and they're going to detect the you know the slight differences um, between statements. So
1: even if we edit this podcast, somebody in the audience might be tweeting, oh, tweeting it. Right
2: exactly. That guy right there. That guy right there. <laughs>
0: so if you, for example, were to say, the pivot is dead,
1: you know... I, mean. I would never say that, but yeah... <laughs> (laughs) Uh, um, I could sort of uh, rephrase a bit of Kaiser's question in terms of Chinese diplomacy, Mm -hmm. you know, and aside from the information overload aspect of it, how have Chinese diplomats changed the way they work over the period of time you've been working with them?
2: Well, I have to say that Chinese diplomats and actually also Russian diplomats that I've dealt with, they're very good, very professional, very highly skilled and highly trained, and um, we always look forward to our sessions in uh, discussion, negotiation, or making our points to our diplomatic counterparts because they're pretty tough. But I think that the Chinese diplomats. You know, the big difference is in sort of level of professionalization. I mean, their language skills, their levels of training, their sophistication, they're very cosmopolitan. And I think one of the big differences, though, is that their system is a lot more top down, whereas our system is is a little bit more, dare I say it, democratic. (laughs) Um, You know, we... uh, You know, we we try to get our junior officers out, you know, on... On to do speaking, to do outreach, um, we promote that kind of thing. Whereas, you know, they s- tend to be much more stick to the talking points, read your messages. Not a lot of public. Diplomacy not a lot of variation among the various conversations that you're going to have. That kind of thing.
0: So basically, the political cultures of the two countries are completely reflected in their whole Com- diplomatic course. Yeah, <laughs> not a surprise. Not a surprise at all. Uh, let's 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 pin you on this whole pivot is dead thing, though. Uh, uh, I mean, I you did know, not I mean, say that. Right. that was was the I headline know.
2: writer, right,
0: right, right. The headline writer wrote that, um, but you know, uh, some people just. Took... Can
1: you set it up, Kaiser? <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. Okay. So you know, there the were people who who were saying, yeah, that the Susan Thornton said the pivot is dead. Uh, this is your opportunity now to set the record straight and uh, to, to get it with context and all. You can unpack that as much as you want. What did you really say, and what did you what did you actually mean with respect to uh, the so-called rebalancing or pivot?
2: Yeah. So. Um you know, the whole idea of the pivot, the rebalance was introduced um, by the last administration after the focus on Afghanistan and Iraq to make it clear that the U.S. considered Asia a vital region for our future, for our future prosperity, for for our security interests, and that we were not neglecting Asia. I think in the period since the pivot slash rebalance was declared, I think we've made it pretty clear that that, the U.S. is not going anywhere. Asia is crucially important. And I think in this administration, because they've already all focused so much on Asia and paid so much attention to it, it hasn't been necessary to say that we're you know, we're focusing a lot of attention on Asia because they've shown it through their actions and through their visits and through the summits and all of that. So I think the bottom line is the U.S. is in a Pacific power. We're going to be in Asia. It's the most economically dynamic region in the world, and we've got to be there for, you know, everything that this administration is trying to do in developing U.S. prosperity. Even though they say America first, part of America first is U.S. engagement in Asia.
1: So one of the problems with the pivot maybe was just the its name. I, I, I often think that because I mean when I first heard it, I started thinking of a machine gun mounted on you know a well, tank. That's just you, that <laughs> for sure. I mean, they all, yeah. many
0: Chinese people certainly saw it as some species of containment, right? And, right? Right, right.
2: And I think that's where the renaming of rebalance came in, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. the rebalance to Asia, because the pivot. It also wasn't something that, you know, our European allies and partners uh, thought was necessarily the right way of putting it. You know, of course, we want to be engaged in Asia, but we're also going to, of course, be engaged in Europe as well.
0: Kurt Campbell didn't get the memo, though, when he wrote his book. I he mean, he, he, he to...
2: loved the word pivot, right, I think. Right. So. A
1: basketball fan yeah, or yeah, yeah. yeah, it's
2: very action-oriented. Right. So. Um. Oh,
1: it's a basketball term. It's, it is. Yeah, it's it's still illiterate in American sports. I didn't realize that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Susan, if you look back over the last 17 or so years that you've been engaged with China, what do you see as the major inflection points? What are the major happenings in the bilateral relationship?
2: Oh, so many. Um, Pick well, three. Yeah, two, yeah. yeah. <laughs> two or three. Well, I think um, so. I think nine eleven was a big inflection point for U.S. relations with every country in the world. Absolutely. And uh, yeah. I was in China for nine eleven. I was out in Chengdu, so that was that was a very major one. I think that uh, kind of s- changed in a way the way the Chinese and the U.S. China relationship. Um, was looked at by both us and the Chinese, um, you know, it sort of pushed us to focus more on cooperation. And so maybe part of the reason why U.S.-China relations seemed steady in that period was because of that push. You know, we were very focused on the Great War on Terror, and I think um, the Chinese were you know, seeing it in their interest to do what they could to contribute to that. Um,
0: ETIM was on the list now. And yeah, we're happy exactly,
2: exactly. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, I would say the Beijing Olympics was yeah. another big inflection point. China coming out on the world stage, getting their swagger on. Um, that really kind of... And followed uh, so
0: quickly by the financial crisis, too. Yes, exactly right,
2: exactly right. The Olympics and then, and then the financial crisis would be, you know, sort of part of the same inflection point point, right, I think. Right, right. And then I would say, you know, probably um, sort of the Sunnyland Summit and oh, and, yeah. and Hu Jintao's sort of ascension to the... Oh, uh, the Xi Jinping, right? Yeah. Oh, sorry. What right. did I say? Hu, Jin Hu Jintao. Tao. Yeah. Xi Jinping. Sorry.
0: No, no, of course. Right. We'll we, edit know, that we, know, out. we know exactly what you
2: meant.
0: <laughs> 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 because Hu Jintao certainly wasn't no, no. Right. No. <laughs> Uh, well, I guess what I'm really most curious about is the, the illiberal turn that happened. Really, I would put it at, at that second inflection point that you mean, you know, the 2009-ish. Uh, this is this is something that fascinates me. I, I have a kind of catch-all name for for I call it the new truculence, This whole basket of illiberal kind of uh, policies, both domestic and foreign, that came out there. I'm wondering if you if you see it that way, and if you see the, uh, some explanation as to why that has happened.
2: Well, um, I think it's probably a combination of factors. I mean, I think certainly the um, focus around the absolute necessity of having a successful Olympics was preceded by the, you know, in their view, there's a necessity to crack down on Mm. any kind of unrest that was becoming visible and might have a chance of marring or spoiling this big coming out event. So, um, and that kind of created its own problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I I really see, I mean, I kind of trace the, the sort of Ill, illiberal turn or the, or the willingness, seeming greater willingness to crack down, kind of reflexively to that to the Tibetan the events in uh, yeah, Lhasa you know, in, in March that you mentioned, reinforced
0: um, next year in Rumchi. Yeah, right? yeah. So then
2: it's so then it sort of um, you know it just can sort of continued and carried on and with the events in Xinjiang and um, you know then then we had sort of the focus on legitimacy of the communist party in the post-arab spring and i think the arab spring is as you mentioned uh and also also a very powerful kind of causal uh focal point for some of this activity too. Mm
0: -hmm. should we get to the present now
1: Yeah. So, you know, we have to talk a little bit about the uh, visit to uh, Mar-a-Lago. Before I ask what happened there, and you might not be able to tell us everything that we want to know, (laughs) um, ahead of the visit, a number of pundits were arguing that the administration wasn't really ready, that it wasn't the time for a summit of heads of state because the U.S. just didn't have a clear agenda or enough understanding of China's agenda. Um, What would your take on that be?
0: Well, they didn't know they had Susan Thornton at the home.
2: <laughs> well, first of all, I just have, have to let it, everyone yeah. know. It's very hard to pronounce Maralago if in Chine- if if you're Chinese apparently because they have a very hard time with the name. So, all of the people kept the protocol people and the security people kept trying to pronounce the name and it was pretty tough for them. I'm not sure why, but uh, <laughs> Mar lago Yeah, it was very hard. It was very hard. So, um but no, I think uh Okay, well, there's a question that you face with Worse any new Japanese administration. The yeah, that's true. Worse <laughs> if you're Japanese. But um, I think the question that you face is, you know, it is, as you said, the most consequential relationship we have, the most important. And, you know, it's not always smooth sailing with China. So if you do not have a way of convening these two leaders early on and you wait until you've got sort of the... Uh, table all set to have a long list of deliverables or outcomes for the summit, it, it may be quite a long time before you can establish some kind of relationship between these two leaders. So I think it was, in the end, recognized that, OK, we're not going to have a long list of you know results from this meeting, but we still need to have uh, the two leaders meet and at least try to get to know one another, establish a rapport, and, you know, make sure that they can, you know, at least know each other so that they can, you know, make a phone call or use the hotline if there's a crisis. And I think that, you know, it it is an argument that you can have that we're not, not, you know, we're not going to be ready. Um, But usually negotiations over substantive deliverables take quite some time. And so if you wait for all that time, then you then you're necessarily going to be waiting quite a long time.
1: So speaking of deliverables, Agence France uh, Press said that uh, Xi Jinping and his team went in with a list of tweetable deliverables, <laughs> um, which <laughs> was quite a cute phrase. Um, uh, uh, President Trump joked that uh, at one point, so far, I've got absolutely nothing. Um, but in the end, did he get something? Did he get deliverables, tweetable or not? Was it 70,000 jobs? What were they said? 70,000 jobs
0: and uh, lots uh, of jobs. Back down on banking in North Korea, North Korean banking through Chinese banks and a couple of other things, right?
2: Yeah, well, I remember before the summit when um, Jack Ma from Alibaba came over to meet with right. uh, President Trump and he said he was going to have Alibaba produce, I think it was a million jobs in the United States by opening up his platform for e-commerce in the <laughs> United States. So, uh, this seems to be a kind of recurring theme Uh, But I think, you know, the Chinese wanted to come and present this 100-day plan to resolve trade issues because, you know, I think given the rhetoric in the campaign and then in the post-campaign period from the president, they were – quite worried about what the economic agenda was going to be and what was going to be expected. And they wanted to try to, I think, show that they were being responsive. In the end, uh, what we agreed on is that we would have a plan to have a 100-day list of things that we were going to have as outcomes and that we would have to Talk about what those would be. So the um, hundred-day plan from the Chinese side wasn't wasn't quite up to what I think the U.S. side was looking for. But mm. that we've agreed that a hundred-day plan is a good idea,
0: starting you know. from day eighty-three or whatever it was. Or,
2: well, uh, whatever day today. Uh, I think today is you know today is day one or tomorrow's day one. Okay. You know, around hundred days. <laughs>
0: So I'm curious about the the, the the whole breaking of the news of the, the strike on Syria, uh, which happened, of course, like over chocolate cake, I think it was. A, he, yes. He explained that he told uh, uh, the, the most delicious chocolate cake ever, I right. think it was. It was described that way to, to Fox. Had your team been briefed ahead of time about th- that this was going to be happening? D- did you so, have some inkling? Uh, yeah. And I'm also curious how, how the Chinese reacted to, to this whole thing.
2: Yeah, well... The chemical weapons strike in Syria was fairly fresh news, but it wasn't that day's news. But there had been a decision-making process building uh, within the U.S. government about what to do in response to that strike. And it just so happened that the decision-making process kind of culminated on the day that Xi Jinping was coming to Mar-a-Lago. And so I think the decision was made that day, but... um, The question about how to inform the Chinese, you know, and what what would be the issues there, what would be their reaction, I think it was considered. I think the overriding factor was to send the proper signal in response to the horrible chemical weapons attack and that the Chinese would, since chemical weapons are certainly outlawed internationally, and the Chinese have been very consistent in supporting that position, that they would understand this response.
0: Yeah, And, and in the interview that he gave with Fox's Maria Bartolomo, he, he, uh, President Trump said that Xi Jinping had asked the translator to repeat, and then yeah. after a beat, he said, uh, that this was an appropriate response that anyone who would use gas on chemical, their uh, yeah, chemical on their weapons own on their own people yeah. sort of had it coming. Right?
2: Well, but, I don't know if he said exactly that, but he he did. You know, President Trump did tell him at the dinner. Mm-hmm. He he said he didn't want them. To go back to their hotel room, turn on, you know, CCTV and see that this had happened while they were eating dinner. So he wanted to give him a heads up. And normally in diplomacy, you know, that's the that's the polite thing to do. You don't want people to be surprised. You give them a heads up. I, I don't know whether the Chinese were, because at that point, once the Syria strike had happened, then a lot of the international media attention went to that issue and not Mm -hmm. to covering the actual U.S.-China meeting that was happening. But on the other hand, um, there was press venues at the summit used to cover the U.S.-China meeting, and then a lot of the questions were about Syria. And so I think they got coverage, maybe not as much as they wanted, but certainly Chinese media covered the whole sure. thing in, in its entirety. So I think they were probably surprised. The Chinese don't like surprises, so maybe that part wasn't so great. But I think in, all in all, it was handled you know, pretty smoothly. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the pundits, of course, tried to connect the these two things and to suggest, yeah, yeah, uh, um, I can predict your response, but you know, that this was intended to send a message to show that kind of resolution to maybe even intimidate that that this was ultimately to telegraph something about North Korea.
2: Well, I mean, like I said, from what I saw, it was all about making sure that we had a timely response to the actual events in the Middle East. I think, you know, we didn't want this event to upset the Chinese meeting at all so but it just happened coincidentally that the timing was such that it 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 had to go off at that time and I I don't think it was meant to I mean there wasn't any connection in the American mind there may be connections in the minds of you know people who are looking at these things a bit more conspiratorially but (laughs) I don't think that that was intended
1: plenty of those about these days. (laughs) Um, So what about North Korea now? We're seeing reports today suggesting that Beijing is is putting its foot down uh, on North Korea, perhaps in response to the phone call between Trump and Xi. And Reuters reported on, they said it was a People's Daily editorial that was quite strongly worded against North Korea. But Kaiser and I were actually looking for the editorial. We couldn't find it on the People's Daily. So they probably took it It from the Global Times or somewhere else. I think yeah. It was Global Times. yeah, which is not, you know, an authoritative official paper, but nonetheless often reflects a view that has some currency in, in, in Beijing. Right. Beijing also seems to have put more teeth in the coal import ban it had announced earlier, although I always am very cynical about the reports about these things, because you don't really want to believe anything that anybody says about goods moving about China. But w- what is going on in North Korea? What is China doing? What's your take on the current situation.
2: Well, I mean, this problem of the nuclear program and missile program in North Korea has been a focus of concern for a long, long time. And we've been working with the Chinese to try to address this problem, you know, for many, many years. And I think what is new now is that the North Korean missile program has made strides that are leading it to be able to launch an intercontinental ballistic missile with potentially a nuclear warhead on it, which is a game changer from the perspective of the United States and from the perspective of the international community. It makes North Korea now an urgent global threat. And I think the Chinese, you know, have been increasingly frustrated with North Korea, but they see that this is really a game-changing move for the international community, and especially the United States and, and our allies in Northeast Asia. So we've been spending the last several years, but particularly the last, I would say, two years working to increase the pressure through the international community's uh, enforcement of sanctions against North Korea to try to increase the pressure on the regime and get them to make a decision about abandoning their weapons program. And I think, you know, until they started really showing this rapid fire testing program, there was a level of concern, but it was not at the level that it's at now. And with the rapid number of tests, they had did more than, I think, 20 missile tests last year, they've done a number of nuclear tests. It's really progressing their program at a rate that we can't afford, can't sustain. And I think the Chinese are getting that hearing the urgency on the part of us and on the part of others and understanding that that this can't continue. So they have signed up to really tough UN Security Council resolutions. They have committed to implement these sanctions to block imports of coal. As you say, they don't have a great record on on implementing a lot of these things. So we're keeping a close eye on it. But they did turn back you know, shipments of coal that had been sitting in Chinese ports this week. And they have said that they are willing to do more and will work with the international community to increase cooperation. So I think the president's message to Xi Jinping at Mar-a-Lago was pretty clear and pretty firm. And she, I think, has already become frustrated with North Korea and was already understanding that China has to do more to cooperate. And so I think you'll see... Them moving to try to increase their cooperation with the rest of the international community on this. Whether it'll be enough to satisfy us, I don't know, and we're going to keep watching. So, so, just
0: to be clear, is that all within the framework of current UN sanctions, or is this something above and beyond that? And and if so, what else? What other levers does China actually have to pull? I mean, remittances or. Uh
2: Right. So, um, well, first of all, the Chinese have committed to implement the current sanctions, and they're not doing enough on that front yet. So they Mm -hmm. could... Be doing a lot more to block financial transactions with sanctioned companies, to, um, you know, block transactions that are prohibited with um, other sanctioned entities, etc. cetera. But uh, in addition to that, we want them to consider doing more. And uh, they can—they have a lot of levers since 90% of North Koreans' economy sort of flows somehow across the border from China or, or across the water from China. So I think, you know, know, there's a implementation of this kind of dragnet on, you know, illicit transactions in China is very difficult since, you know, it's up to local governments to actually undertake this kind of research work and implementation, the police work, etc. And we're trying to basically encourage them to put a lot more resources into finding these transactions and blocking them and stopping them.
1: Susan, if I may ask just one more question about North Korea. I was there a few years, quite well, 10 years ago, and uh, I did the little foreigner tour that they take you around on Pyongyang and you go to the DMZ. And one of the, aside from monuments and, um, you know, dear leaders um, that are embalmed, one of the things they show you with a great deal of pride is this American surveillance boat uh, whose name slips my mind right now. The Pueblo, that's right. And this is a a great victory in the war against the American American, American imperialists. And, you know, it's a very proud part of the the tour. And, uh, you know, being on that boat, uh, this kind of pathetic little relic, <laughs> you know, from 1967 held up with such pride made me think that, you know, if maybe you would just talk to North Korea, maybe something could be worked out. I mean, does anybody in the State Department ever discuss the idea of recognition direct, and direct talks? talks, if not recognition, immediate talk directly to them is that an idea that has any currency at all or is that just not a subject that anyone will go near
2: oh my goodness we have talked to north korea um you know directly on many occasions in the past and we have um you know gotten into negotiations we have you know provided for light water uh, nuclear reactors to North Korea. We have provided humanitarian assistance to North Korea. We I led um, a group of people to Pyongyang in the late 90s to have a negotiation on provision of food assistance to North Korea. So there have been many, many, many occasions in the last three decades or so where we have tried very hard to engage in direct talks with North Korea and every single time our goodwill and good intentions have been met with you know unfortunately uh cheating and other forms of duplicitousness uh and we just we just can't um really have another uh round where we sort of enter into talks hoping the North Koreans will sort of do what they've committed to do. We've got to see them take actions that indicate that there is some serious chance of them abandoning these weapons programs, because at the end of the day, it's about the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And if we can't see some tangible sign that they are willing to be serious about talking about that, then what are we really talking about?
0: Okay. You know, she spent time in Turkmenistan. She knows from crazy <laughs> dictators. Just, <laughs> we have to remember that. This is a woman who really knows what she's talking about. Uh, let's take a question from the audience here. Uh, we have a, a, a little sack of cards here. Uh, this is, of course, something that we'd wanted to ask. At this point, how do you see cross-straight relations under Trump and Tsai and Xi progressing as compared to how it progressed under Obama and Ma and, and Xi?
2: Yeah, well, that's a really good question. I mean, this... Um You know, this administration, uh, of course, you know, in the transition period, post-election but pre-inauguration, the president in December did uh, take a telephone call from Tsai Ing-wen, the leader of, of Taiwan, and that was a... A fairly unprecedented communication that happened there of course he said you know notice she,
0: how she said leader right that's very, very trained <laughs> diplomat here we're talking about her.
2: of course uh the president said that you know well she just called me to congratulate me etc but that did uh create some ripples uh, across the strait uh in mainland china and beijing and uh they made the chinese made very clear their you know firm long standing position and made clear that they were very hopeful that the us would would stand by its commitments with regard to the cross strait situation as as we had set out in the three joint communiques that were signed back at the time when we reestablished diplomatic relations with People's Republic of China or established for the first time with People's Republic of China. So there was a series of back and forth discussions on this. I think a lot of briefings were held, and soon after the inauguration, the president did have a phone call with Xi Jinping in which he sort of reiterated and reaffirmed the United States' one-China policy, and... um, you know i think over since that phone call and in a series of conversations since then and then again at mar-a-lago um you know the president has made uh clear that you know we're not going to be altering our policy um with regard to taiwan and that we're also going to stand by our commitments made to taiwan uh under the taiwan relations act which was which was signed into law at about the same time as the second communique so I think now the situation has sort of been established that the U.S. policy is not going to change. Of course, between Beijing and Taipei, there's still some uncertainty with regard to what is the formulation by which they will continue to have interactions and, um, you know, continue to try to sort of move forward their relationship. I think... Um, we're encouraging both sides to have communications directly with that, with each other to avoid you know misunderstandings, misinterpretations, which can be very uh, common in this kind of a uh, relationship. There's, um, you know, a lot of interactions already between Taiwan and mainland China, economic, re- you know, re- relationships and tourists back and forth. There's more than 100 flights back and forth every week. And so there's just a lot of things that come up in the relationship and need to be discussed. So we're encouraging them to continue to communicate and to continue to sort of, um, you know, move forward in their relationship. And we'll see how that goes uh, between the two of them.
0: Jeremy, you had a question. You mentioned the diplomatic language, you know, finding the right terminology to talk about it. And that's that's an issue that came up with Secretary Tillerson's visit.
1: Yeah, that was – he came in for a lot of criticism for using typical Chinese government rhetoric like win-win and, you know. I personally read a lot of that criticism and thought, you know what, so what? That's such an easy win. Say the words they like. You know, that doesn't really – harm your position. Anything, right? uh, but that that uh, put me in disagreement with a lot of writers and China watchers and various experts. What's your take on that?
2: Well, Secretary Tillerson said that win-win was Dale Carnegie's phrase, not the Chinese government's <laughs> phrase. So I <laughs> that, thought that was a also a fair point. Yeah. Yes. No, I think, um, you know, sometimes people pay, you know, a lot of attention to these kind of small things that I think get too much sort of scrutiny. I think, You know, he was there on a first visit to meet his, you know, Chinese counterparts, the Chinese leader. He talked a lot about how, you know, we had managed well the last 40 years of this important relationship by relying on things like, you know, avoiding conflict, making sure we treat each other with respect— Uh, and having win-win outcomes. And he thought that that was a perfectly reasonable way to look at what has characterized our past relations and how it's helped us to manage relations. And I think that was, you know, a fair statement. And I think it was a little bit too much in the, in the media focus after the trip, actually.
0: Hmm. I, I, would, I would agree. Uh, I, one more question. I mean since we started talking about your, your stint in the 2000s in China and how important human rights was, uh, there are a lot of concerns now from the human rights community that rights issues will be backburnered by this administration and that things like civil liberties and rights of minority nationalities and, of course, of, of religious freedoms and things like that, they won't be a priority in diplomacy with China, that there will be sort of explicit delinkage. Uh, can you speak to this?
2: Sure. You know, I think, first of all, the Secretary has made very clear to all of us at the State Department that human rights are an integral part of sort of who we see ourselves as Americans, and it's not going to be delinked from our foreign policy. Um, You know, we rolled out our human rights report this year. There was some criticism that he wasn't there. I mean, it was one of his first weeks in the department when we rolled that out, so I think we have to remember that it's still early on in the administration, and there's a lot of issues that we have to get to and tackle, and we will get there, we will tackle them, but they're not all going to be able to be tackled sort of top priority right out of the box. So, I mean, human rights is a big priority for the secretary and for, I think, this administration. You know, the secretary talked about human rights, religious freedom, raised specific human rights cases when he was in China. The the president talked about human rights with uh, Xi Jinping when he was at Mar-a-Lago. And I think, you know, it's clear to the Chinese that we're not going to be backing off this at all. I think for effective diplomacy on these issues, we have to work human rights issues into all our conversations with our Chinese counterparts. And we do that whether it's the Secretary of State or the President or even the Minister of Commerce or the uh, Attorney General or, you know, other people who travel over there that work on scientific exchanges. A lot of our exchange with our Chinese counterparts is about improving governance, which also gets to protecting human rights. So I think there's many ways to get at this problem, but we won't be backing off human rights.
0: It's good to hear. Uh, One more question from the audience. I think it's a very interesting question. Uh, At this time in U.S.-China relations, in the bilateral relationship, what is the role of other countries in the Asia-Pacific region in in maybe helping to smooth over the relationship between I mean, in the past, we've seen countries like Singapore play a really important role. Uh, Maybe you could speak to that. I'm not sure what countries the asker had in mind, but um, maybe
2: Well, I think, you know, managing and dealing with the rise of China is very important. It's maybe the most important issue for almost all of the countries in Asia. For all of the countries in Asia, China is, if not their number one, Trading partner, it's at least number two, and it's probably number one for most of them. Um, I mean, these, you know, are very important relationships and countries in Asia, they want to have those trading relationships. They want to be very tightly bound and interconnected economically with China, but they also want to have the United States there, present and in evidence as sort of a, um, A guarantor of their security and and a a protector and a balancer. And um, I think that that's, you know, been, you know— continue to be very, very important to them. And we hear it you know, a lot from countries in the region that they want to have their relationship with China, but they also want the U.S. there and they don't want to have to choose. I think for smoothing over the U.S. relationship with China, there's so many countries in Asia that are important. Our allies are very important, Japan, Korea, Australia, you know, of course, other friends in the region, New Zealand, Singapore, you mentioned. I thought we have Australia Thailand. was an enemy. <laughs> no, no, they're they great allies. <laughs> um, you know, uh so there are just there are a lot of um connections there. Of course, the U.S. has been trying to participate actively in the ASEAN-related fora as a, um, as a partner country and will continue to do that. I mean, I think, um, you know, Singapore will continue to be very important as a partner to help us to interpret our relationship with China to other Asian partners, And I think Singapore, you know, has a a good understanding of what they want to see U.S. engagement be in Southeast Asia, and they are very good at making sure that we are present and that we are active in the region. I think... uh, That'll continue to be important.
0: Excellent. Well, we want to be mindful of your time. So we we want to thank you, first of all. I mean, it, I'm Getting hungry. That is, yeah. <laughs> well, welcome to come join us for dinner afterward. But That's uh, well, all we have time for today. But uh, Susan, thank you so much for taking the time to, to come in and chat with us. Uh, do stick around and make a recommendation with us uh, in, for this next segment. And let me quickly pay some bills here. Before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at supchina.com. Com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at, at SubChina News and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SubChina News. If you like this podcast, be all up. By all means, just go and leave us a positive review on the Apple App Store or on Google Play or wherever it is that you go to review apps. This really helps and it means a lot to us.
1: Now, on to recommendations, Jeremy, as is our. Our tradition, you may be in. Sure, very quickly, and maybe all of you in this room already know this, but there's a, a great WeChat daily account called Lordji Sway, si Logical Thinking. Uh, it's exactly one minute every day in Chinese, and it starts off with a guanjianzha, a, a keyword, uh, and it's often related to a book or something that the the uh, the guy who does it, Lordji, has read, and he's. A, a, Good entrepreneur, he makes various ways of monetizing it, and it's supposedly valued at uh, a billion yuan. Um, but it, it's a really great way of staying in touch with not really big political issues, but kind of issues of society in, in mainland China and getting a one-minute superbly edited piece of Chinese. And it's very difficult to do exactly one minute. So I, you know, I know, it, I know. it's <laughs> a lot of work he puts into it. Anyway, away, excellent one on WeChat. I'm a big fan, yeah. Susan, what do you have for us?
2: Well, I have uh, a book recommendation. Uh, I actually got this uh, tip from my Canadian counterpart who does Asia, and uh, I'm reading this book. It's going to take you a lot more than one minute. It's probably going to take several thousand minutes to get through this pretty thick book, but it's called The Immobile Empire by Alan Perfit, who is a French author uh, but it's in translation in English and it's uh available on used bookstores and you can get it on Amazon and it's about um, you know, when uh Lord McCartney went to China and had to go see uh Emperor Qianlong and refused to kowtow. And this goes into the archives on both sides and compares how the Chinese side and the British side uh looked at uh these incidents and it's fascinating and it and it's and it's so, you know, true for today's U.S.-China relationship in many, many aspects.
0: One of those true pivotal moments in yeah. history. I mean, absolutely. That famous letter that we all read in, in every anthology on, on Chinese history. Yes. Uh, uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, so my recommendation is actually going to be one that David Moser made a few years ago on the show, but I'm going to have to be because I'm going to have to you know, double down on this one because it's just so good. It's Endymion Wilkinson's uh, amazing tome. Uh, it's, it's, it's called... Uh, Chinese history, a new manual, and it it is just a resource, not just a resource, not just a tool, but uh, the articles themselves about every, you know, every approach, every topic in Chinese history, uh, whether you want to understand dates, if you want to understand geography, you want to understand, you know, the the naming conventions, if you want to make sure that you're using pinyin correctly, it's all there, it's an amazing, amazing resource, Uh, i Finally, got myself a copy of it a couple of months ago, and it has just not left my bedside. I mean, every night I, I read a couple of, of the, the pieces from it. It's, it's, cannot recommend it more highly. Magisterial is the word that somehow every reviewer li- lands on when I was trying to avoid it, but I, it really is magisterial. Um, and and with that, I want to thank once again, Acting Assistant Secretary of State Susan Thornton. Susan, so much, so, 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 so wonderful for you to take the time Great, to come thanks. and ch- chat with us. Uh, and And uh, we really hope you can have you back on the show again sometime. Love to. All right. Uh, Jeremy? Thank you, Kaiser. Thank, always, you. Yeah, thank you. Thank so you. We'll, we'll see you guys soon. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldhorn. Thanks also to Anne Chang and Soraya Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And, of course, follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening. Let's hear it one more time for Susan Thornton. Yeah. <laughs> And take care.